It is my intention and prayer that over the next three consecutive Sundays, we'll bring to a close this intermittent and sporadic study through the book of Ephesians. It's been a joy to see this queen of Paul's epistles. If the king is Romans, this queen of sorts rests with the glorious themes and treasure that is the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. Well, it's Mother's Day. Fathers, this is a surprise. It's too late. It is Mother's Day, and I'd like to go on the record by stating that, moms, this might be the best sermon, the best Mother's Day sermon text of all time. I mean, we are about to observe a passage of Scripture that drills down on children obeying their parents and honoring their mother, and as icing on the cake, fathers are singularly called out as needing to really step up and shoulder their God-given responsibilities to gently lead and direct their homes in the Lord. Moms, you get full permission today to continually ask your children and your husbands over lunch, remind me one more time, what were those grand themes that the Lord showed you during the sermon this morning? Rehash it one more time. What was it? No, in all seriousness, we are about to see two more examples, two more contexts that the Apostle Paul gives to Christians for how they must reverence Christ in the various authority structures of life. First, the family, and second, the workplace. And may God help us reverence Christ as we see afresh the joy of living in submission to His Lordship in all aspects of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us eyes to see your good and brilliant design for honoring the Lord Jesus Christ in the home and in the workplace. May we receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we inevitably hear things that will prick our consciences. May we confess in advance our failures to obey these commands. And may we rely on your grace to demonstrate any measure of faithfulness to live them out. May you crush the proud hearts here this morning, starting with my own. May you lift up the downcast who may feel engulfed in the darkness of this world. And may the cleansing stream of Christ's blood assure us of the truthfulness of your word and the hope of the new life that we have in him. It's in Christ's glorious name we pray these things. Amen. Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul the Apostle is calling Ephesian Christians to live out this new humanity that God has formed through His Spirit and for His glory. In the Son, Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile are made into one new man. They are now fellow citizens with all the saints in the household of God. They are growing into a holy temple, a dwelling place. For God by the Spirit. And this new humanity where God dwells among His people presents a challenging enterprise to maintain. It should come as no surprise that sinners, even forgiven sinners, 
redeemed through Christ's blood, will struggle to walk worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Speaking the truth in love, bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit to one another, walking in love, being imitators of God, resisting and exposing the darkness, being careful how we walk through life and being filled by the Spirit. All these themes and exhortations that the Apostle Paul has given to this point. But in particular, Paul zeroes in on the critical grace of living under God's authority, especially as it is channeled through various human relationships and social structures in society. So we pick back up in chapter 5 in the midst of Paul's train of thought, which involves his desire for the Ephesians to live spirit-controlled lives. Lives governed by the Spirit of God is the manner in which the Christian is to navigate life in God's new community called the church. But what good is a new community if it lacks order and proper authority? Well, we read in chapter 5, verse 21, we do so alongside the controlling idea in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in Paul's thinking, and in this particular text, submitting to one another is the overarching call to live under and within the orbit or the sphere in which God has placed a person in such a way that reveres Christ, that reveres Christ and honors God's authority in the world. So in this passage, and as a bit of a review, I I do not believe submitting to one another means merely serving one another selflessly. While that is always generally true for all Christians in all contexts, this text more specifically speaks to how God's Spirit-controlled people will live under authority and exercise proper submission in the various relationships and institutions they find themselves in. So Paul gives three examples. Submitting to one another. Submitting one to another. Some to others. Three examples he lays out. We considered previously verses 22 through 33 of chapter 5, which speaks to the wife's role to honor the authority of her husband and to submit to him in a manner that magnifies and goes public with the drama, the glorious drama of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A Christian wife displays the church's submission to Christ as a Christian husband is called to display Christ's sacrificial, selfless love for his wife. So now as chapter 6 begins, the same call to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ equally applies now to children living under the authority of their parents in verses 1 through 4, and then to bondservants or slaves living under the authority of their masters in verses 5 through 9. Let's read, follow along as I read verses 1 through 3 now of Ephesians 6. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We first see here 
Christ-honoring submission with respect to this arena of children and their parents. So three, these three familiar verses contain the subject of the command, children, the command, obey, and the underlying motivation for heeding the command. So first, children are the subjects in view. Paul's letter would be circulated from house to house where it would be read in the presence of children. He assumes this to be the case. He assumes these children will be listening. So children, do you hear? Listen. Those who have an ear to hear, hear what the Word of God says. He presumably from toddler years to teenage years And as Dan referenced last week in his sermon, it is so significant that our children and parents buy into the importance and the value of children increasingly growing in their ability to hear, to meaningfully listen to the Word of God in the assembly. Second, the command is given to these children to obey their parents. Both parents, mom and dad, are to receive an equal measure of obedience from children. Just because mom is to submit to her, hus- her husband does not mean a child should look at mom and say, nah, you're just the assistant manager. I only obey the manager around here. No, no, no. Children are to obey their parents. Obedience in this text means that we gen- what we generally assume it to mean, following the directives of another being subject to the orders of someone else, doing what one is told to do, carrying out the task at hand. So children, does obedience come so natural to you? Do you just wake up in the morning, Mother's Day excluded, and say to yourself, how can I bring joy to the heart of my sweet and dear mother this morning? And you just spring out of bed ready to do as much as you possibly can to serve and obey them. Do you think, how can I just love and honor my dear father today? Bring his heart joy. Is that just natural? Where if ever a thought entered in your mind to do your own thing or to disobey, it, it seems like this foreign idea that you've never had a thought of before. No, it's just the opposite, isn't it? It really is. Obedience is difficult. Our natural state is to want to go our own way and to please ourselves. None of us enjoy submitting our desires to another, which is why we need to be reminded of not only the command, but the benefit and the motivation and the goal. The question may pop into our heads when reading verse 1, and that is, so if I'm reading this text clearly, are, are children only to obey parents who are in the Lord? Does that mean obedience should only be given if there are Christian parents involved? No, this phrase, in the Lord, is connected to the verb obey. Obey in the Lord. So children are to obey in the Lord. This is important, kids. Very important. So someone as important as the and famous as the Apostle Paul is speaking directly to you, children. And he wants you to know that you are to obey in everything because you love Jesus. You are not, that is not an adult thing. 
that you just kind of have to do, you know, comply and go along with things because it's easier now. And maybe you'll want to do the right thing from the heart later down the road. No, the Apostle Paul tells you from the heart, obey the Lord. What a thought. Oh, it pleases your parents for sure. But make sure your ultimate motivation is to please God. Paul writes similarly in Colossians chapter 3. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. As we read at the end of verse 1 here in Ephesians 6, Paul notes that this obedience from children is right, he says. When we observe a child in just a fit of rage, angrily fighting or hitting their mom or dad and screaming at their parents, making one demand after another, give me another cookie right now, or I will ride this ride one more time, or give me money to play this game or that game, or swipe that credit card and buy me that $200 set of Legos now. (laughs) When we see these sorts of things, do we need a long deliberation of I wonder who's in the right here. Huh. I wonder what's going on. This takes a lot of debate. We, we inherently know there is a disgust to what we are observing. This is not right. On the contrary, when we observe the opposite behavior, self-control, simple trust, obedience when asked the first time, there is an inherent beauty in that, is there not? Paul continues then. It is, it is a moral rightness on display. In verse 2, we read, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So not only is obedience commanded of children, but honoring of father and mother. Paul seems to be quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint in this rendering of Exodus 20, verse 12, as he highlights the fifth commandment in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. This fifth commandment of the Decalogue is the first law in the entire Sinai Code that has a promise connected to it. And in that way, it is set apart as uniquely significant for his argument here. The Mosaic Law took very seriously as you well know, the sin of dishonoring father and mother. In Exodus 21, anyone who strikes or curses his or her father or mother shall be put to death. In Deuteronomy 27, anyone who dishonors his or her father or mother shall be cursed. Deuteronomy 21, any stubborn, defiant, disobedient son shall be killed. Deuteronomy 13, any son or daughter who sought to lure the family toward the worship of another god would be stoned. And positively, Leviticus 19 says, everyone shall revere and fear their mother and father. So the will of God on this matter is not different today. We do not live under those commands, and I in no way would advocate that those things would be literally carried out today, but it's not as if the heart of God thinks differently on these things today. 
as if, you know, 3,500 years ago he was super strict, and then about 2,000 years ago, the time Paul's writing, it's kind of like that gap of time between the first kid when the, the parent wants to get everything right, and then by the fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth kid, they're kind of like, ah, I'm a little lightened up a little bit. That's not the heart of God on this topic. No, God hates the disobedience of children. Because a child's honor and obedience to parents is the first important step in learning the honor and obedience of God. That is why it is so significant. If a child casually or flippantly dishonors his or her parents, they are very likely to treat God's authority in the same exact manner. When we read in Romans chapter 1, which paints a very sad picture of the wicked, we're almost shocked that Paul would mention disobedience to parents among things like full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, disobedient to parents? Really? That fits that list? Apparently it does the heart of God. So children, listen. Let this sit heavy on your young conscience. God has placed your parents in your life, sinful though they may be, to train you how to honor God in all of life. Do not despise it, for it comes with a great promise. And in verse 3, so that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So Paul, drawing on Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, holds out this general proverb, this rule of thumb, that life will go well for the person who honors and obeys his parents. This person's future is bright and projects a full, blessed life on the earth. While our children will outgrow the obedience in everything phase, we will not outgrow the fifth commandment of honoring father and mother. It is an unceasing task for as long as life shall last. Looks very different in different phases of life, but will always be there for the people of God. So may every teenager, every young adult, every young married, every middle-aged person on up continue to honor and respect God's gift of parents as an extension of a life that reveres and lives under the Lordship of Christ in all things. Well, after addressing the subordinate children, Paul shifts gears and addresses the superior member of the household, the fathers. In verse 4, we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord the passage that was just read at the beginning of the service here this morning. So as the head of the household, fathers are responsible. They are responsible for the direction and the culture of the entire home. In Hellenistic Judaism at the time, fathers had absolute control over everyone and everything in their home. Fathers were responsible for the education and the discipline of their children. Much like a king over his subjects, parents, Fathers in particular were rulers, superiors, benefactors, and, and masters, where children were juniors, subjects, receivers of benefits, slaves. 
Philo once wrote, he said, parents were to children as God is to the world, culturally speaking. Another writer noted that in the context, the father had more power over his son than a master had over his slaves. With this kind of authority, how should the Christian father wield such power? Not that I'm importing the cultural context that Paul is speaking into as the presumed and best cultural milieu that we ought to live in or think in terms of. Let me be clear on that. But nevertheless, with a responsibility to oversee and to rightfully manage, what does this power authority look like given to a Christian father? Well, Paul says he is to never stir up his children to anger. Stir them up. What does that mean? Well, the idea here is to make it a practice not to do this. Or do not irritate or incite your child to anger. Well, how does this happen? I'm sure we could make a long list if we were to try to do so this morning. But it happens when children get a clear impression over time that dad is impossible to please. Whenever a legitimate mistake is made, dad berates his son or daughter. Whenever a careless error happens, there seems to be no end of the lecture that begins with, when I was a boy, I used to... Whenever a willful, sinful decision is made, a father unloads a dump truck of angry speech that is unrelenting, perhaps making everyone wonder if dad wants to fight or if he wants the child to grovel at his feet for forgiveness. Sometimes provoking to anger can take more subtle forms, such as the cold shoulder manipulation or the silent treatment that sends the message of scornful dissatisfaction with a child's inability to ever measure up. Perhaps you've seen this, sadly, in real time. I can think of a certain situation where I... I knew of two young boys in a home, and the the one boy was the all-star collegiate athlete, succeeded at everything he attempted, and the other son was just average or below average, never measured up. The father just would berate the failings of that second child. And he sadly went on to live most of his life longing to please the father, but only, only to hear continual demeaning remarks of never measuring up. We know these variations of that story in countless ways. Fathers, in a thousand different ways, we should not provoke our children to anger. This does not mean you do not draw clear lines. This does not mean that you do not use a stern tone from time to time. This does not mean you do not warn with sincerity when circumstances demand it, or discipline appropriately. But in the end, you must bring up kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is the alternate path that Paul commends here. So to bring up one's child is this wide-angle, expansive word that covers the full breadth of raising a son or daughter. This is the same word Paul uses a few verses earlier with respect to the husband who nurtures and cherishes his wife. It's that same heart. So Father, ask yourself, have you functionally reduced your role 
to simply financial provider of the home? Have you reduced your role to simply the fun guy who plays with the kids, but none of the hard work is done around the homestead? Have you reduced your role to simply the tag-along, relying on your wife to chart the course for the family and just to try to help her vision for the family come to pass? Fathers, just as you are to nurture and cherish your wife as you lead her, as Christ leads and loves His church, you are called to tenderly nurture the hearts of your children as you bear, as you bear responsibility to train, to discipline, and to instruct in all things within your home, always under the ultimate authority of Christ. Fathers, do not delegate and do not abdicate what is yours to bear. God, help us train and instruct our children in a nurturing manner that gives life and prepares children to live under the loving authority of Christ. And what a better way than walking with them through these doors week after week and availing yourself of the Lord's counsel coming to them in a myriad of ways as they formally and informally interact with the Lord's people and interact with the Lord's will through His Word. What a grace the church is to this end. But Paul now turns his attention, transitions to a final example of slaves and masters in verses 5 through 9. Christ honoring submission with respect to slaves and masters. So we read here, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Well, it's impossible to try to understand this passage without knowing something of slavery in the ancient world. Slavery, sadly, is a practice that runs through the entirety of Israel's history from its earliest beginnings. Even the esteemed patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were slaveholders. Similar to polygamy, while the Bible describes its presence and even sometimes its prevalence, it never lays down a theological defense for it, but rather provides counsel for how to operate within the existing socioeconomic conditions that it brought about. Also similar to polygamy, rather than writing a direct treatise to attempt to immediately dismantle the practice, Paul's writings, in some ways, set a groundwork that made the perpetuation of, and certainly the flourishing of, polygamy as well as slavery very difficult. Regarding polygamy, Paul repeatedly mentions that all church leaders, elders and deacons, must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. That could have been in many church contexts at the time. They would have heard that and thought, 
Really? Well, that cuts out all these people, and they're good people. Well, Paul, through the inspiration and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, is looking long and knowing in the second and third generations things will be different. He's setting a groundwork, perhaps not even knowingly, but in God's providence through the growth of the church, this seems to be the case. Regarding slavery, Paul calls Philemon to regard his runaway slave Onesimus as his brother in the Lord. Shocking. Brother? Slave master? And their brothers? Partiality and social rank was not to break the spiritual family ties forged by Christ's blood. His teachings certainly helped to crack the foundation of a system that required certain people owning other people and depriving their personhood as image bearers of God. With the expansion of the Roman Empire came an ever-growing category of conquered people who were, instead of being killed off, they were made into, as Aristotle famously put it, living tools. A slave was given no legal rights and was under the complete control of their master. And at the time Ephesians was written, it was estimated that a third of the city was enslaved or more, and another large percentage of those who used to be. Upwards of 40% of all those living in Italy at the time were slaves, and another large percentage of those who were in that institution. It's believed Ephesus had a great many slaves, and the church at Ephesus would have been brimming with interest to know what does the Apostle Paul of all people think about this subject. So without doing a 30-minute sidebar on slavery in the ancient world, let me just provide a few basic points to help us because we can't talk about this and not read in our own most recent experience with slavery in our cultural context. So one scholar by the name of Clinton Arnold provides a basic but helpful overview of the foreign world that Paul is addressing and how it, in many ways, is different from our more recent experience with slavery in the New World. The first point, the first distinctive, is that racial factors played no role. And these are just important for us to latch on to, to gain a, an accurate awareness. Slavery in America during the 17th through 19th centuries involved the forcible seizure, man-stealing of black African slaves from their homeland. Roman-era slavery had nothing to do with race or a particular people group. Roman slaves were of virtually every race of people in the Mediterranean region. And the most common source of slaves in Rome were prisoners of war. Secondly, most, many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. A great number of slaves would expect to be released by the age of 30. In fact, so many were being released from their servitude in the early uh, first century that Caesar Augustus declared 30 years old to be the minimum age for emancipation and then limited how many could be freed per year. Owners paid the occasional sum of money called a peculium to reward those for their hard work and this would fund uh, them as they purchased their freedom and entered into status of a freedman. By contrast, slaves in the new world had no hope of manumission and freedom. Many slaves, thirdly, looked in a variety of or worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Although some slaves were confined to hard labor in, in agriculture or manufacturing or worse, the salt mines or the gladiatorial games, which had a life expectancy of two years or less in either of those, 
Many served as doctors and teachers and writers and accountants and agents and bailiffs and overseers, secretaries, and even sea captains. African slaves, by contrast, were seldom entrusted to these kinds of positions in society. It was not uncommon for people who willing, to willingly place themselves, willingly place themselves under the ownership of a wealthy master who would house them, feed them, and employ them as a way of getting out from under a debt or as a way of rising the social ladder. In a, in a way, they would receive a fully funded education. You might die in the process. However, it was a way to rise. Socially speaking, number four, many slaves received education and training in specialist skills. Few opportunities were provided to slaves in the new world to receive general education or skill development training. Yet this was a common practice of slave owners in the Roman world. This charity to the slave was beneficial to the master as well as to the slave. And masters often viewed it as a wise business strategy to invest in the skillfulness and the knowledge base of these slaves. And then lastly, freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship to their former masters. It was a practice common for emancipated slaves to, to gain Roman citizenship. This has been really important for them. Having gained their freedom and life out from under the provision and the protection of their former masters, this could be sort of scary territory. So with the former master now becoming their patron, transition to a more independent life was eased. Now, don't read all that and think that I'm saying a certain thing. Because I think Arnold, the same individual who wrote those pieces of information for us, accurately and rightly summarizes the situation when he says this. In spite of these substantive differences between Roman era slavery and New World slavery, it is important not to construe this ancient form as more humane or as a more morally justifiable economic system. Although we can point to some features that make it appear better than slavery in the antebellum south of the United States, it still involved the coercive ownership of another person. Roman slaves, like those in the Americas, were bought and sold like animals, were punished indiscriminately, and violated sexually. They were the ultimate victims of exploitation. So when you think of Paul's counsel here, and you try to run it through your grid of familiarity with the topic, think in terms of it was probably better in some ways and worse in many ways. That both of those, the, the variation was wider of what we think of in terms of our more recent history as a country and the world uh, with African slavery. So Paul gives his counsel now to slaves. And he says, in light of how, and, and we in verses 5 through 8, but in light of how bad this system of slavery was, how is it conceivable that Paul's counsel was not to take to the streets, riot and protest, and dismantle this whole rotten system? Seems pretty bad, worth standing up against. But we don't ultimately know. But in God's wisdom, even the most broken of human structures, institutions, nations, and socioeconomic structures are used by God to accomplish His purposes. 
Likely, should Paul have advocated such a violent strategy, countless lives would have been lost, the reputation of Christ would have been sullied, and the sword of man rather than the sword of the Spirit would be to praise if such a revolt would have resulted in the desired liberation. On the contrary, though, I say that in all caps because it is striking. Paul says to slaves, Obey these earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a deep and real respect. Do it with a sincere heart, he writes. Don't fake it. Don't be a two-faced, hypocritical sycophant that appears one way and says all the right things, but thinks and feels from the heart totally differently. Even to that terrible master of yours, hold a sincere and deep respect for them. A slave was to treat his master as you would Christ? I mean, our mouth just continues to drop even more? Paul is saying that these slaves, imagine if the Lord Himself were in your presence, how would you treat Him? And swap it out and see your earthly master there. Treat him no differently. Let that sink in. Theologian John Stott adds a helpful word here, very applicable for us. He says this, Exactly the same principle can be applied by contemporary Christians to their work and employment. Our great need is the clear-sightedness to seek Jesus Christ and to set Him before us. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients, and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. Wow. Verse 6 gives more detail. Don't obey just to conform on the outside with eye service. We know what that is. A service that is just seen by the eye. But what we can hide, what's going on on the inside, says a very different thing. As people pleasers, but as servants or slaves of Christ. Anytime you see bond servants there, if you have the ESV it reads that way, it is the word for slave. So Paul is saying here, in other words, Christian slaves must continually be remembering that they belong to someone who has far greater authority and far more honor than any human slave owner or even the emperor himself. As slaves of Christ, they serve someone whom God has exalted high above any earthly or heavenly power, as Paul's written in chapter 1, and through whom God will reign over all creation. Chapter 1, verse 10. These Christian slaves belong to and serve the greatest master of all. So in every way, they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King over all. So Paul stresses that this slave-like service is God's will, no matter how menial the task, and that it should be from the heart. And as the service is rendered with a good will, he says, it is to the Lord and not to men. 
Perhaps the church in Ephesus had far more slaves than masters in it. Very likely it did. Which is why he continues laying on the admonitions here for slaves. But regardless, he's making himself clear, is he not? In verse 8, though, the eternal reward is held out by the Lord to anyone, slave or free, who selflessly serves in the Lord's honor and for His glory. So with a quick pivot, Paul addresses slave masters in verse 9. He says, Masters, do the same to them. He just clearly says, do the same. Meaning, these same selfless characteristics that I'm talking about should characterize you as well. Stop your threatening, he writes. Stop the abuse and the sinful anger when jobs aren't done the way you want them to be done. Remove those options from your tool belt and resolve not to use them again. Here's why. Your master is in heaven. Your slave has a master who's in heaven. That heavenly master does not care about how powerful you think you are. He shows no partiality based on your status or your wealth or your self-assessment of how important you are. In other words, you both work for the same person and you share the same status as slaves of Christ. Don't you forget that. That's what matters most. So while it may be somewhat difficult for us to make a one-to-one application here, given just how challenging this cultural context is and how it, it initially assaults our sensibilities that there would be commands like this. But there is certainly strong application here for the Christian employer and the Christian employee. In fact, verses 5 through 9 are, are dynamite for gaining a Christian theology of work. They are fantastic. Brothers and sisters, latch on to these principles when Monday morning rolls around. You deeply, if you're an employer, deeply respect, okay, if you're an employee, there we go, deeply respect your employer, no matter his or her character. Deeply respect them. Work with a sincere heart. No faking it. And that's on you. Paul apparently believes that the grace is just waiting for you to transform your heart and your opinion about that workplace. Work with a sincere heart as if your work is being offered to Christ Himself. Work for Christ, not for men. Work for the pleasure of God, not for the pleasure of men. If you work for men, you won't work for Christ. If you work for men, you'll cut corners. You'll take the easy path out of self-interest. You'll be unproductive until someone important checks on you and sort of looks over the cubicle and, and follows up on you. And you'll end up despising the work that God has given you. And now, just as Paul counsels the slave in 1 Corinthians 7 and says that if he's able to acquire his freedom, by all means, go for it. I think similar by extension, you should feel free to improve your job status. Should the Lord avail more opportunities to you, go for it. But living and working with this kind of vision can radically transform the work week. 
and the very way in which we view the majority of the time in our lives. If you're an employer, deeply respect your employees, no matter their character. Now it's more complicated because you'll have to face some hard decisions about letting certain ones go and all that that entails, but still a deep, sincere respect for each one. Work with a sincere heart toward them as if you were serving Christ Himself. Do you lead in a way that is fake? Those of you who have some measure of authority overseeing others? Or in a way that puts yourself first and sort of steps on employees to make yourself appear more successful before just the right people to get where you want to go? Christ is indeed everywhere in this text. He is present with the Christian worker. His glory is the aim of the Christian worker. His reward is the goal of the Christian worker. And to be a slave of Christ, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, is to be a free man in the Lord. So, let me pose the question to any here this morning who are outside of faith in Christ. If an unknown countless number of slaves in an ancient world and their masters could have their lives and livelihoods totally transformed by this truth, I have a master in heaven who bought me with a price by his own blood and now he calls me to joyfully live for his glory, that truth. Are you this morning better off by snuffing it out? If Christ will not be your master, how long will you live in the delusion that you can fill that role? My neighbor across the street just died on Monday, suddenly, mowing his grass. I'm so thankful Christ was his master. We do not know the time we've been given. The Scriptures say life is a vapor. How long will some of us go in the pattern of thinking we can pilot the course of our lives? We can be our own masters. That is absolutely contrary to the way in which you have been created by a holy God. For many years, I've loved the hymn written in the mid-1800s by George Matheson. Make me a captive, Lord. Now, sometimes with hymns, you don't get the opportunity to explain the backdrop like we've done this morning that makes it fall on modern ears with a little more palatability. So sometimes singing about being a slave and captivity without the proper explanation can be confusing to folks. However, he combines the paradoxes of our strength and God's strength so beautifully to picture a life of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ whether it be in the trials of childhood or of parenting or fatherhood or in the workplace. Being free always means being bound to Christ. George Matheson writes this, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conquer be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand but imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my stand. In all areas of life, in all categories that the Lord finds us this week, 
May we learn to love and to honor Christ and to revere Christ as we live properly under the authorities God has given us and as we respond in each of these moments as if we are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as your captives, knowing that's not something we're ashamed of. That is something we rejoice in because there is no freer spot in all the world than being bound to you. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the way that your word clears the air and helps us breathe, spiritually speaking. We pray for the children in our assembly that they would gain fresh insight and courage and hope from this passage that as they live under the authority of mom and dad, they would learn something with each year that passes under life under your authority. Father, we pray for fathers that they would steward their homes under the Lordship of Christ. That they would nurture, they would instruct and discipline their children in the things of God. They would create a proper worldview that that sees Christ as the very aim of every breath that we breathe and the joy in it. We pray for all of us who work in different capacities that we would see in this passage the call to deeply and sincerely do our work knowing you are with us at all times and your glory is our goal. And may we in all areas of life see the joy of being your servant. Apply these words to our hearts in the unique ways that only your spirit can zero in on. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.